somebody's finishing praying, just to finish up. Dan had mentioned uh, the, uh, the $10 stories, and if you remember, uh, the hear and respond. If you were here three weeks ago, uh, everybody that was here got a $10 bill, and uh, we asked you to listen to when God, when and to whom God was telling you to give that as an exercise, one, in hearing God, and, and two, in uh, exercising generosity. Not, not random acts of kindness, but intentional generosity prompted by the Spirit of Jesus, all right? couple more stories I want to read because I'm getting we're getting more every week I've read some stories and this is what I'm calling we're calling the ten dollar stories so let me read a few of them we got a few more this week and uh, if you're like me I still have my ten dollar bill and my little card in my wallet sticking right in front of my wallet I'm trying to think okay God what do I do with this so don't feel any pressure I mean if you still have it a couple years from now yeah you ought to probably feel some pressure about that but um, here's the first one I've held on to my ten dollar bill for about three weeks now I've been pr- prayerfully thoughtful about whom and where I was going to donate the money. I would see people on the street corner asking for money. Every time I'd go to the grocery store, I would look for a family who looked like they may not have enough money to pay their bill. But no scenario felt right. Again, in other words, nothing, nothing felt like it was God prompting me. Until I met Stephen. I was working in an elementary school where they have a high poverty rate. I was working with a group of staff members. I had excused myself to go to the restroom. On the way down the hall, I met an 8-year-old boy who was wearing a pair of shoes that were obviously way too big for him. Looked like they could have been for his, from his dad. He had the worst case of bedhead, and his clothes were wrinkled beyond wrinkled, but he greeted me with a big toothy grin and, sm- and a smoky hello. When I returned to the meeting, I asked the group, who's the boy with the big shoes? And they said, oh, that was Stephen. They, wanted to exp- they went on to explain that Stephen lived in a house where three families lived, home filled with poverty and chaos. Apparently, one of Stephen's cousins threw Stephen's shoes down a deep, deep hole, and the shoes could not be retrieved. Stephen only had one pair of shoes, therefore he came to school wearing either either his little brother's shoes that were too small or an adult men's pair of shoes that flapped like duck's feet on him. Social worker went on to explain that he had been in her office, that Stephen had been in her office several times angry and complaining about not having shoes and about other students making fun of his big floppy shoes. He told her that he prayed every night for God to bring him a new pair of shoes. But every morning they were only the same old shoes that didn't fit. So I opened up my purse. This is someone from Exodus. Pulled out my $10 bill. As I handed it to the social worker, I told her the story of what our church was doing with the $10 bills. And then I wanted her to use the $10 on a pair of shoes for Stephen. Told her I was sorry that it was the only cash I had on me or I'd have given her more. As, as tears started to roll down her cheeks, the principal stood up, opened his wallet, and gave another $10 bill. Slowly, one by one, each of the teachers around the table opened their purses and also gave the social worker a $10 bill. I wish I could be there to see Stephen's face when he sees the shoes God sent him. Again, these are not random acts of kindness. This is what the Spirit wants us to do. All right. Sorry. <laughs> I cried this morning when I read it, and I thought I was over it. But all right. <laughs> all right. Another one. I kept wondering what would happen with my $10. I continually forgot that I even had it, but whenever I thought about it, I felt like I would use it at the grocery store. And uh, it goes on to write that he was at Kroger, 
saw one of those bake sales somebody was having to raise money for medical bills for uh, a child that had a lot of medical bills. And then he says, I w quietly walked over to the table to the bake sale, put the $10 in, put in my $10 and walked away. The woman thanked me and offered me a cookie, but I declined. I wasn't looking for anything in return. And then another one. I'm just going to read a handle. I, th again, this, what we, part of what we do at Exodus, we understand that God speaks to us when we want to hear and respond. And this $10 is a small exercise for probably larger things in all of our lives. We need to learn how to hear and respond, hear and respond. Uh, a man at my husband's work has a daughter who gave birth to a baby girl a few days ago. Two days later, the baby died. The family is very poor. Some of the employees decided to bless the family by giving them money to help with the cost and the financial stress of how to take care of the funeral. We decided to give both of our $10 bills along with more money, and then my husband went to the funeral and ended up, ended up having some really good conversations. All right? A couple more. I may try to figure out a way to collate all these and just put them online so you can read them all more in detail. Um, the day we got our $10 bills, I closed my eyes after sitting down from communion and asked God what I should do. I don't normally get very quick responses from my questions to God. Normally, I spend most of my time trying to listen to God. Most of my time trying to listen, actually trying to ward off all the distractions. But this day, a fully formed idea popped into my head instantly. And I double-checked. God, are you sure I'm not trying to be some hero? This could, this could come across as kind of haughty. Well, it actually took quite a bit of guts and humility to follow through with the idea God had given me. I felt embarrassed, even though I hadn't done, don't think anyone saw me. And if they did, they didn't know what I was doing. Anyway, a week before we received the $10, we were in a small parking lot, and I was being super careful not to bump the car next to me with our door. We can all relate to that. My husband even asked me if I had enough room, but when I pulled out my son's infant seat out of the car, I moved the door open more and touched the other car. I glanced to see if I had caused any damage, but I have to admit it, it was just a glance. Now we all feel that, don't we? Yeah. Then when we were left, the owner of the car was standing there, and I panicked. He's there to accuse me of damaging his car. I totally wimped off from taking the opportunity to double-check with him and see if he noticed any new marks in the car. I felt all these emotions, fears, emotions of fear and shame, and I didn't really mean to do it. Plus, he looked like someone who really, really cared, all caps, really, really cared about what his car looked like. So I wimped out on facing him. Well, I didn't mean the story to be so long, but during communion, God told me I could give my $10 to another car owner because haven't we all found marks in our car from unidentified sources? Then a few days later, God told me to add some of my own money to the $10. That makes sense, I thought. And as we drove away that day, I had thought I could have offered the man $20 to get his door buffed if there was a scratch. But, so I wrote a note explaining in a pay-it-forward kind of scenario, since I couldn't find the person, except I guess it's more of a confess-it-forward, and apologize for someone's wrong toward them. And I shared how God was teaching me from the experience and for $30 in an envelope with the note, and I found another nice car to leave it on in the Kroger parking lot. Anybody get that? Just <laughs> God used it to help me process the negative emotions I had from the original incident and to resolve to face potentially awkward situations with strangers in the future. I want to be a person of integrity in all situations, even if it makes me feel like I'm in the fourth grade again. And then one other one. There's, like I said, there's a number of them. The one I'm going to read is... Uh, this evening, our neighbors invited us to go, some, go out to eat at a local eatery. We ate outside because it was so nice, but our service was extremely slow. The waiter came out and apologized all over the place to us. When he brought out our food, he said, we'd be glad you're not inside. One waitress just walked out and four tables got up and left because the service was so bad. 
They were short of waiters, waitresses, and things got even tense, and our waiter wasn't even supposed to be helping us. He was the bartender. After we went inside, I felt a jolt went through my body. Now, again, not everybody feels jolts when God speaks to them, but some of, some of you will say, yeah, I felt something kind of boom. I felt kind of, kind of a click, a bell or whatever that God was saying, give your $10 to this bartender. So then she goes on to write that she kind of found him and when he was, didn't have anything going on. She said, I want to give you this extra $10, extra $10 tip because you were so kind to us when you were under so much stress inside the restaurant. I've worked in customer service before and I know what it's like. He was so grateful and had a look of unbelief. It's that look we all have when somebody does something for us and we know we don't deserve. And then I give him this extra tip. I pray that God touches this bartender and that Jesus reveals his love to him in a ways that he never knew before. So uh, those of you who still have your $10, and if you weren't here, grab your own $10 bill and stick it in a prominent place in your wallet and do the same thing. Just in the practice of listening to God. So... In the same way with generosity, last week we, wrote, we took a real uh, spontaneous offering for a couple pastors, newish pastors in town, one at uh, Sacred Heart Church, one at First Presbyterian, not new, but new pastors, maybe for me, to, I met them for the first time, and we collected $240, and I sent them both, sent their wives both, $100, $120 worth of uh, gift cards as a way from Exodus Church to bless them in what they're doing, so... Those kind of things are things, kind of the practical things we like to do at Exodus uh, to bless people. So uh, let me pray, and I'm gonna, we're going to look briefly into God's Word this morning. God, we want to be uh, people who listen to what your Spirit says, and we believe that your Spirit's real in this very moment, in this time and place, and not just in this time and place, but wherever we are in those times and places, the Spirit is with us. But we do believe he's here now, and we believe that when we look into your word, the Bible, that your spirit has the ability and the power to speak to us uniquely and individually, and we ask that you would give us ears to hear, and we ask that you would give us the grace and courage to respond to whatever you ask us to do, even as one of these writers in the notes said, even if it makes us feel like we're in the fourth grade again. Because, God, we want to humble ourselves to be the kind of people that you want us to be full of the life and the power that comes from God. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, here's the question. Why is it that some people find God in a way that others don't? Why is it there are some people you know or you've read about that seem to have found God... And do these things for God in the ways that the rest of us don't. Is it because God just wants the rest of us to kind of fumble and flounder along and try to figure out what it means to live a hear and respond kind of life? Or were these people just special? Are the people that do these great things for God in big ways or in ordinary ways, are they just special people? Do they have special intellects? Do they have like a, a, a certain kind of spiritual chip inside of them the rest of us don't have? For example, in the Bible, the guy in the Old Testament that was youngest son of his father, kind of a dysfunctional family, his siblings didn't like him at all, he had all kinds of issues going on, his siblings tried to kill him, kind of an ordinary guy, his name's Joseph. Ended up saving God's people because of how God used him in that situation. So 
he didn't have like the ideal situation because we often think, well, those people had ideal situations. What about a guy in the Old Testament who, by his own claiming, was a very ordinary person and he even said, I'm, I'm kind of the lowest in the social totem pole in my, in my Jewish religion. And then God says, no, but I'm going to use you to defeat the enemies. He's like, me? I'm not even a soldier. And so God uses this ordinary guy named Gideon to rally God's people to drive out the enemy. So we have Gideon and Joseph, not overly special training, special family, special internet. What about the teenager, teenage peasant girl who probably couldn't even read, but God asked her to be the one that bears the baby Jesus in her body sent from the Holy Spirit. Her name's Mary. No special education, no special training. What about the guy in the New Testament who was a crook, worked for the Roman government, hung out with prostitutes? His name's Matthew. Jesus chose him as one of his disciples. Was he special? Did he have special training, special intellect, special status? No, he had none of those. What about the Jewish fisherman who was about as blue-collar as you can get, who had a foul mouth? His name's Peter. Was he special? Why did he find God in a way that... Or what about... This is just now in history. What about a young girl named Agnes? And right away, she was start, start with a strike against her with the name Agnes. But what about her? Felt like ordinary girl, ordinary person. Spent 19 years teaching high school geography in a mission school. And then felt the calling of God to do something else. And now we know her mother, Teresa... She wasn't overly special, no special training. She was kind of a diminutive woman. Her fellow teachers, when she was a teacher, would describe her as kind of sickly and really ordinary. Or what about a young man named Dwight who had a third grade education? His spelling was atrocious. He used capital letters randomly, didn't know how to spell. His speech displayed that he really didn't have any education. He dressed like a slob because that's all he could afford. But this young man named Dwight is who we know now. It was a man named D.L. Moody who spoke to millions and saw thousands come to know Jesus in America and Great Britain in the, in the middle of the 1800s. Education at third grade. And he, look what God did with him. So you might think, well, we're talking about those kind of people who God can use, those kind of people who found God, because they had special training, special scenarios, special pedigrees, and the answer to all those questions, no, they didn't. They were as ordinary as you and I were. So what sets them apart? Why are those people special and the rest of us seem to feel like we flounder? What we've been doing the last few weeks is doing a, just a, uh, this is the last Sunday, a series on Kind of what is it, who are we at Exodus Church? What are we all about? What do we want to be? Who, what kind of people we want to be? And we've talked about our mission at Exodus is to release life. We want to be the kind of people not only who release $10 bills, but in doing so we are releasing life because we're releasing blessing. But also in other ways we release forgiveness, we do release goodness. We've talked about that our strategy is stretched beyond comfort. It's okay to feel like a fourth grader again if God's asking you to do something that feels really awkward and weird. Because all these people I've just mentioned were asked by God to do something that was stretching for them. And then we talked about a few weeks ago in the last weeks that we trust Jesus. 
We don't just trust, uh, we don't just think that Christianity is the right way for us. We believe Jesus, and we trust him that he said about himself and about the way to God. We trust the Bible because we trust Jesus. But then the question comes to the kind of the simpler, can you say, I trust Jesus? And what does it mean to trust Jesus to become one of these kind of people who seems to find God in a way that others don't and seem to kind of live at a different plane spiritually and they seem to embody joy and peace and God does things through their lives? How do you become that kind of person? I'm going to read a, pa- a parable, um, that one of the parables Jesus told, one of the many parables, and parables were simply stories that Jesus told to tell us another truth. This comes from Matthew, or Luke chapter 8, and it's called the parable of the sower. And I'm just going to focus on the end of it, but let me just uh, explain the first part of it. Jesus basically says, okay, farmer had some seed. He threw it on the ground to see if he could get things to grow. Some fell on the footpath, so it's packed down dirt. Didn't take root. Some of it fell on rocky soil, took root for a little bit, and then died because the rocks were sucking life out of it. And some fell on the weeds, and the weeds were competing for water and nutrients, and the seed died. But then he said, some of it fell on good soil, and the seed took root and produced a huge crop. And the disciples were like, okay, Jesus, we don't get what you mean by this. What do you mean? And then Jesus interprets it this way. Go, Paul, the next slide. He says, okay, the seeds that fell on the footpath represent those who hear the message only to have the devil come and take it away from their hearts and prevent them from believing and being saved. So these people heard, but didn't take root. Then he goes on to say this, the seeds that fell on the rocky soil represent those who hear the message and receive it with joy, but since they don't have deep roots, they believe for a while. And they fall away when they face temptation. So there's category two of somebody who they hear, but there's no fruit out of the seed because of Satan snatching it away, different concerns, worries, pressures. Then the third category, Jesus says this, the seed that fell among the thorns represent those who hear the message, but all too quickly the message is crowded out by the cares and riches and pleasures of this life. And they never grow into maturity. So the first three categories of seed that falls in the ground, maybe you might connect with or relate to, and you feel like, yeah, I'm kind of stuck in one of those categories. It's like I have this initial energy to do what God's asked me to do or to obey certain things that God's told me to do, but I, I never kind of grows. And there may be, or maybe just an issue in your life where you feel like, yeah, I, I feel like there's something that God's doing, but I, it just seems to get sucked out because I get anxious I'm, I'm afraid, I get awkward, I feel, I feel like it's too stretching for me, I don't want to do it, obedience is too costly. And then he, Jesus finishes with this, he said, but the seed that falls in the good soil represent honest, good-hearted people who hear God's word, cling to it, and patiently produce a huge harvest. How can you be one of those kind of people? Is it random? Again, it's what I said earlier. Was it random that Mary and Abraham and Peter and Gideon or Mother Teresa and Dwight Moody and B- Billy Graham and whoever else you want to... Is it random that they were one of these kind of people? Or was it just kind of like, well, we just we do whatever God asks us to do, to do and we have no control over that, so we kind of fall into a holy passivity? Or can we seek to become one of these kind of people that has 
the kind of heart, the kind of spirit that when God plants something in us, it grows. Because I'm guessing most of us would love to say this is true about us. But I'm also guessing that most of us would be like, well, how, how do I get in that category? Is it like, is it a random thing? Is it God, does God just go eeny, meeny, miny, mo, eeny, meeny, miny, mo? Is that what God does? Does he just choose certain people to have receptive hearts, or is this something we can do about it? A much bigger theological argument behind all this we're not going to get into. But in essence, we, I think we can all agree, and most Bible teachers would agree, we have something we can do about it. And the, uh, simply stated, you can hear and respond. Everybody can hear and respond. And the word I'm going to use is the word receptivity. That's, that's the word of the day, receptivity. Everybody get your cell phones out. How many people have maximum number of bars? Look at your cell phones. Quit texting. Get your cell phones out. Just kidding. How many people have, like, maximum bars? All right. We all know what receptivity means with our cell phones because we're obsessed with it. How many times have you literally gone to a window to try to get some bars? How many of you have driven on State Road 37, and right before you get to Martinsville, the road dips and you lose your bars? You know what I'm talking about? At least you're AT&T. Now, AT&T, I lose my bars all the time anyway. But you know what I'm saying? We're obsessed with... We're obsessed with receptivity. We're obsessed with seeing how many bars we have. And if I was in a building last week and they said, well, it doesn't work in this part of the building, but if you go through this door and you kind of do this, you'll get some bars. And we do that because why? We want to use our cell phones. So we'll find those places of reception. If we're not in one, we'll do stupid things like lean against the window. I've even done this, held it up high to try to get my you know, text messages to come through. I don't know if that works, but at least I feel like I'm doing something. So we all know what it means to be receptive. But how do we become spiritually receptive people? There's one of my most influential books in my life. It's a book by the name of uh, Pursuit of God by a man named A.W. Tozer. It was written, I don't know, 50, 60 years ago. And he actually talks about, and this was, has been and will be incredibly influential to me, that receptivity is the very thing that sets apart this group of followers of Jesus from this group. And this group are the ones where the seed falls on thorns, hard ground, weedy ground. They kind of plod along in their Christian life and they kind of make it, but not a whole lot of joy, not a whole lot of peace, not a whole lot of fruit. These people, he asserts, cultivated receptivity. They cultivated, learned how to be receptive. God, I'll talk more about what that means in a second here. But one of the things, go to the next slide, Paul. One of the things we have at Exodus, and we haven't used it lately, but I'll, you'll hear more about it in the next few weeks. We have a one-page document that we call, I Trust Jesus. And we talk about what we ask people who are part of Exodus to commit to is to commit to four different qualities that we want to be like. We want to be people who are receptive to God. We want to be people of integrity generosity and gratitude and i'll get into you know there's different questions and ways which we define that but that seems to be the four characteristics that are pretty that will pretty be hit by pretty much inclusively what it means as a follower of christ that you have those person of integrity person of gratitude person of generosity but i want to focus just on the receptivity thing because if you're if if you if you're a person of receptivity spiritually I believe the other things all fall into place. You know a lot of people, and I know a lot of people, who may have integrity and they're grateful and they're generous, 
but spiritually they seem like they have nothing going on with them and God. And you might even feel like, well, that's what I feel like my life is like. I've tried to do all the right things and be good and be generous and give my $10 away and say thank you to this person. But I feel like between me and God, there's like nothing. I feel like I got zero bars, either my battery's broken, whatever. So here's, and here's, how, we say it, here's how we say it on here is this, is we ask people to make the commitment. And I'm going to unpack the statement for you and why we use it from this passage. I intend... To obey and do the things Jesus says to do. You see, because being receptive to the things of God is not something that happens randomly. It's not something that happens passively. And it's not something that happens through osmosis. It's something that many of people here can attest to. It's something that happens because you intend it to happen. When I was a kid... I wanted to be an NBA basketball player. Can't jump high enough, can't dribble well enough, can't shoot enough. And when I was a kid, my dad would say, well, go out and practice more. Well, I don't need to practice. I mean, I, in other words, I had, all the, I had all the wishes to be an NBA basketball player. I didn't have the intention to do it. And how many times do you think of things that you've wa- I want? I want to be a better cook. I want to get better at this. And we live in this world of desires. Oh, I really... I want to be really good at that. Or are you doing anything? No, I just want to be really good at it. And if I want it, if I wish for it bad enough, it'll happen, right? Of course we know that doesn't happen. I can wish all I want to be a good free throw shooter, but it's not going to happen unless I intend to. And then it's not going to happen unless I do something about it. So if you want to be spiritual receptivity, if you want to be a person that's receptive to the Holy Spirit, it goes way more than just a wish. And it goes way more than just looking for the next spiritual high moment at the next spiritual gathering you're at. Because spiritual receptivity, whether it's in these people we looked at in the Bible, or whether it's Agnes or Dwight, it's because they not only intended and wished for being closer to God, they did something about it. And that's where I think a lot of times we get stuck. And so I'm challenging you. If you're, my guess is there are a lot of you here that have a desire to know God more. Now, there may be some of you here who be like, I'm not, I'm not even there. And if that's you, if you're like, I didn't have a desire. I'm here at church Sunday morning because my mom and dad made me or my husband or wife made me or I feel guilt. If it's a matter of desire... Let me just challenge you from that group. Simply pray the prayer. God, I, this is the phrase that I got from this book too. I, God, I want to, want to, want to desire you more. You may not even say I want to desire you more. You might say you have, you know, you may be two wants away or three wants away. I want, but at least tell God what you want. God, I, I want to desire you, but I don't, so I want to, want to. That may be you. Maybe your desire is waning, and you need to ask God, God, will your spirit just give me a desire that I don't have? But at least you're asking because you know you don't have it. But then there's those of us who have desire, but we're not sure if we have the intention. Because, again, I can have the desire. um, I don't know how many home improvement projects I have around the house right now that I have have a desire to get done. But I don't know how many of them I I intend to get done. 
And some of you men who own homes and your wives who are frustrated with them know exactly what I'm talking about. But intention is a step of saying, no, I, I am going to do this. But then you have to step into that next step of, okay, now what are the ways in which I'm going to get it done? And how do you, and this is where we talk about spiritual habits. You know, being in reading the Bible, having times of prayer. Like Dan said, being in relationship with other Christians who can encourage you. Those are the kind of things that you can't just wish for or intend to. You have to figure out how to, what to do to make them happen that cultivates you to be a receptive person. Receptive to God. It's not, it's not legalism. It's not like, oh, read your Bible, be in a small group, go pray, go to church, give your money, do this. If you do all those things, you will earn enough points with God that he will finally let you into his heaven with some degree of a smile on his face. No, we do those things because it puts us in a situation where we can start hearing God. So that's how God says it works. I have, I have horrible bare spots in my lawn. And I've asked uh, a couple guys here at church who are, who are grass experts to help me. And they tell me, well, you've got to break up the soil. And it's like, well, can I just throw the seed on the soil that's dry and bare? And won't that? No, you've you got to break up the soil. And my guess is, for some of you in your spiritual lives, and myself, I'm included in this. There's times where I want something to grow, but I, this is a little bit of work. I don't want to, I don't, I kind of like what I am right now, and I don't want God to plow up anything inside of me. C.S. Lewis actually, C.S. Lewis was a Christian in Great Britain in the earlier part of the last century. He said, we have to constantly ask God to plow us up and re-sow the seed. And I brought this because you know, when you look at this, it does have a little more feel of like, ugh. I mean, that feels like ripping and tearing. And I actually broke one of these. And uh, all I had left was a stub. So I was just like, ugh. I'm literally, I, if you were to see me in the neighborhood, you would have thought, what is this guy's problem? Because I was intent on getting grass to grow in my, gr- in my yard and places where it still isn't growing. But I thought, well, I'll do whatever I know how to do. But maybe there's something, maybe you're part of your, in part of you being a person of receptivity. Maybe you don't lack desire. Maybe you don't lack intention. Maybe you lack the resolve and the courage that we all probably struggle with. Of, well, what if Jesus wants to start doing this in my heart? What if he wants to take stuff out that doesn't belong there? What if there's areas of disobedience that I know and I kind of pretend aren't there? But if Jesus starts, what if he gets too close to that? What if I have to give this up? What if there's something in my life that's probably not even a sin issue, but it's becoming an idol in my life, and Jesus might be saying, get rid of that too? Because I, I don't know if I want Jesus to do that. Can't he just make the grass grow magically? Does he have to kind of disrupt the soil? And the lives of all these people I mentioned from the Bible, the lives of these people from history, and the lives of many men and women in this room, could attest to, no, God has to do this sometimes. He may have to do some disrupting. Not may. He will do disrupting. He will interrupt you. He will disrupt you. He will bug you. He will irritate you. But you know why he does that? Because the very reason, we don't want to just be receptive people. We want to be receptive people because, like we said at Exodus before, God's intent for us is to be alive, awake, and free. He wants to have the fullness of his life inside of him. And he knows the only way that happens is if he has full access and full range of bars, full receptivity between us. 
And so my challenge simply is, what are your intentions in your relationship with Jesus? Because your intentions are, well, I go to church, put my time in, hopefully my ticket's still stamped for heaven. If that's all your intention is of Christianity, then I guarantee you that's all you'll get. And the joy and peace and the fullness and the power that Jesus promised, you won't get that. You won't. Because if you don't intend to get it, you won't. But if you intend and then give Jesus the, the right and the, and the means, whether you're reading scripture and prayer and fellowship with other people, and through that God starts to jostle and rumble and disrupt things in your life and break open new ways for you to be free, if you want to be that kind of person and allow Jesus the access into your life, you can be that kind of person. But you've got you've to go there. And Jesus doesn't necessarily always do it without your permission. He gives us free will. So we want to be receptive people. We want to be the kind of people who intend to obey and do the things Jesus says to do. And I'm going to stop right there. I'm sure there are people here who there are areas of in your life, and I've been in these areas of my life, where you know you are not obeying something that God wants you to do. You know it. It may be with your money, it may be in your sexual life, it may be how you always shade the truth and you're not full of truth, or it may be how you're unkind and unforgiving. I don't know what it is. You want to be a receptive person, you've got to do first what Jesus has already said to do. You've got to obey first what he said to do. If you want to be the kind of person that hears and responds to God in a life-giving way where you become full of the life of God, you can't, you can't say, well, I'm not going to obey, I'm going to obey 90% of this, I'm going to leave that undone. So now God, speak to me. He won't. If there's some known error in your life where you're already saying, I'm holding on to this. So let me challenge you on that. But let me just challenge all of you, all of us. And if we want to be this kind of people, give him, give him the freedom to disrupt your life. Because we want to be receptive people. Because can you imagine, I read those stories, the $10 stories. Can you imagine if every one of us didn't have just $10 stories, but we lived our lives regularly looking for ways in which God was asking us to give ourselves to others, give away forgiveness, giving our husbands or wives grace and mercy, giving our children grace and mercy, giving the poor, the people who are poor, the displaced, whether it's money, energy, forgiveness. If we all live in constant awareness of the ways in which Jesus wants to set people free through us, the number of people in this room could change this community in a year if we all live that way. So if nothing else, simply maybe your prayer to Jesus is, Jesus, I, I intend to be that kind of person. Show me what I do next. And I guarantee you, Jesus will show you your next step. Dan and I, Dan mentioned, we have, you know, we have next steps we suggest for people, but ultimately ask Jesus what your next step is and he will show you finish with this passage um this is the very thing that jesus says uh, said in the end of the gospel of matthew he says teach these new disciples which would be us to obey all the commands i have given you and then he adds this but be sure of this i am with you always see we're not just being receptive for the sake of being obedient yeah i should be an obedient person but we believe that Jesus' promise is he's going to be with us. And he wants to give us the freedom. He wants to make us alive and wake and free. That's his promise. And we finish every Sunday with communion. 
Because we want to remind ourselves of the promise that Jesus said, this is for you, this is for you to remember me and to remember everything I promise you, starting with, I promise that I will be with you through whatever I'm taking you through. Sure, I'm going to disrupt your life and interrupt your life and make you uncomfortable, says Jesus, but I'm doing it and I will be with you through all that and, and I will set you free. You will have the life and the power and the peace and joy you've always Longed for, never thought you could have. So Jesus, so what we do at Exodus, we, uh, we have communion, do it every Sunday as a way to remind ourselves the promises of Jesus. It's not, it's not a simply a religious ritual. It's a religious ritual that has significant meaning behind it. Because every time you take a piece of bread or this juice into your body, you're inviting more of this disruptive, interrupting, life-giving Savior inside of you. So when you come forward, that's what you're asking. I want more of this life-giving, joy-giving, peace-giving, disruptive, interrupting, discomfortable kind of Savior in my life. Because I know He's the only way that's going to set me free. Here's how we do it at Exodus. We, sing, we start singing a few more songs. As we're singing, you're invited to come up. We don't dismiss by rows. We don't check who's up, who's down. Come up to the main three aisles. Offer you the bread. Ask you to tear off a piece, offer you the cup, and how we do it here, we just dip in the cup. Most people eat it right here. Some people take it back to their seats and eat it. Either is fine with us. Um, and then we just uh, finish that way as we sing. So let me pray, and then the band will come up, and we'll sing, and we'll uh, invite more of Jesus in our lives. Jesus, we're grateful that you give yourself, gave yourself, and will always give yourself to us. And in doing so, you broke, you broke the chains of the spirit of the law and death. And you open up what your word says is a new and living way for us to be alive, awake, and free. To be full of the life and power that comes from God. God, we want to be um, the kind of people who hear and respond to you. With $1, with $10, with $100, with our forgiveness, with our time, with our energy. Um, we want to do what you want us to do. And we ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.